We can open up our Bibles to Judges chapter 1. So the seventh book of the Old Testament, right after Joshua, after the first five books of the Bible, Judges chapter 1. I will only be reading the first 26 verses because it's a long portion of Scripture. So we're not reading all 41. First 26 verses of Judges chapter 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first against the Canaanites, for us against the Canaanites, to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with them, went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in Negeb, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. This, the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to, she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave, up her, gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenites, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in Negeb near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephoth and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, 
So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and his family go. And the man went, or the man went, to, be, or went to the land of the Hittites, and built a city, and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. So when we read this, we only read the first 26 verses. We'll go through all 41, kind of a broad overview. When we come to the book of Judges, where are we? What is Israel doing? Where are they coming from? And what have they been commissioned to do? And then what does this all mean for us now in 2021? This is not like our wars today. It's very different a different commissioning, a different goal. So to begin with, we have to keep some things in mind. And these will act as our boundary markers, our background markers, context for the judges. So to back it up a little bit, before Judges 1 occurs, Israelites were brought from Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments and the rest of the laws and the requirements for sacrifices, priests, and the tabernacle were given. In Deuteronomy 20, we're given a full chapter on what's called harem warfare, devoting a region or an area to Yahweh. Now, if you've struggled with this, harem warfare, if you've struggled with death and destruction, driving out inhabitants, that sounds way too much like what we've seen in modern day. Way too much like everything we've seen either in Africa, in Germany, in bad places, we've seen, we've seen this, we don't want to know this, this isn't good, this is why we don't believe the Bible, it's why the Old Testament's terrible, it's why all those guys were way back then, but that's not exactly what, what harem warfare is. But I completely understand. It doesn't always refer to killing the people of the land. In fact, it most usually means driving people out. We'll see this in narrative for today. And it had nothing to do with the people themselves per se. It had everything to do with idolatry and worship. And this is crucial in the book of Judges. The book of Joshua, right before Judges in your Bible, is Israel moving from the wilderness into the promised land of Canaan to take possession of it and establish the presence of Yahweh. Israelites do take possession, but the question remains, will they follow the mandate of Deuteronomy 20? Will they follow harem warfare? Will they follow pushing out so the presence of Yahweh, the presence of the Lord, can stay in this land, they can enjoy him? Will they devote the region of of this land to Yahweh, pushing all idolatry and false worship out and keeping true worship in? So it's not enough to be in the land, which is not their doing. They constantly groan. But the land must be the new temple of Yahweh, much as we have seen in seed form in Eden in the first couple chapters of Genesis, 
a fuller picture with the Mosaic Covenant, even broader in the books of Exodus to Numbers. So we have to ask a couple questions about this text. With this mandate, will the people prove faithful to Yahweh? We can put ourselves in those shoes. Will we be faithful to Yahweh? The commandments given to us, will we be faithful to Yahweh? Will their new mediators faithfully follow through? Will they set up this temple and enjoy the presence of Yahweh forever? This is what the book of Judges sets out to answer. (laughs) And before we get into the text, think of Judges 1 to 2, kind of like a movie trailer for the movie itself. And the movie itself is Judges 3 to 16. Judges 1 gives us a quick picture of how the rest of Judges goes. It goes from bad to really worse, which is how all of Judges goes. Bad to way worse as we move along in Judges. And this is our guardrail for these distinct movements in Judges 1, 2 to 6. We'll begin with, first, the pursuit of the commission. So this is a hopeful beginning of the devoting the land to Yahweh. We look at this part and we say, they kind of got it. They don't got it perfectly, but they kind of got it. Then we'll move into the second one, the failure under commission. Just outright, abject failure. They just flunked. Right after they kind of obeyed, they just disobeyed the rest of the way through. And it doesn't go well quick. And lastly, we'll be given a glimpse of hope amidst incredible failure in the third part, the covenants and the commission, with this incredible promise also amidst this judgments with the messenger of Yahweh. So even though the Israelites and their judges fail miserably, consistently and effectively only the promises of Yahweh remain firm. He promises to bless them because of his firm covenants with their father, Abraham. And we'll see how this plays into our own, your own failure under the law and the steadfast obedience of our Savior to redeem us from the bottomless pits of our, your incredible increasing sin. So this first movement, the pursuit of the commission, this is their attempt at fulfilling Deuteronomy 20 amidst a couple other passages that we'll talk about. So these first four verses, when our author says, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? This starts almost exactly how Joshua 1 starts. So we're kind of given this, things might go well. For Joshua, it went relatively well throughout the book. And so we're given this glimpse of hope at the first part. Okay, Joshua's done. Who's this going to move into next? Who's this next meter? Who's this next judge? Is he going to be faithful like Joshua was faithful? It's also the transition from Moses to Joshua occurs here. We have another transition. Israel is always in need of a mediator. They can't be mediatorless. They can't approach Yahweh. And we've seen that in the Exodus, where they're too ter- terrified to walk into the presence of the Lord. So they asked Moses, we're way too scared to go talk to that guy up on the mountain. You go up for us. They always need a mediator. 
It also starts with hope. In verse 2, we said, The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So before we're given all of this failure, we're given a glimpse of hope. Yahweh has already given the lands. The promise is secure. This promise precedes the fulfillment. It's already like the Lord saying, this land is yours, now go take it. Author is signaling on the front end that before we read anything else, the land is theirs. And then Simeon, who's also given an allotment in verse 3 of the land with Judah, this is also signaling us back to Joshua. So when we read the Old Testament, much like what was taught to us in the morning, we have to read the Old Testament in light of the Old Testament and then further along in light of the New Testament. Because it, it takes sections from all over the first five books and says, this is applied here, this is applied here, this is applied here. So we have to read this the whole, what we call the Pentateuch, in the back of our minds. And this is Joshua 19, when the, uh, the allotted land is given to Simeon. It's involved in this harem warfare. He joins the battle of Judah, and immediately we're told, so again, this is good. They're told, drive them out, take control, expand my temple. What does Simeon do? He does it. It happens immediately. He takes this land. Immediately we're told that the Perizzites and Canaanites, probably just a specific region in this area, are defeated. He's given this mandate. He fulfills this mandate. Again, a glimpse, a glimmer of hope. So we can say we're on the right track. Can they keep this up? He's about to hand the baton to the next person and say, all right, I did my portion. You're up next. Can you do what Deuteronomy 20 told us to do? What's our answer? No. We meet this character, Adonai Bezek. It's probably not his proper name. It's translated, it's going to be like Lord of Bezek. It's like their governor. It's like the governor of this region in this area. Immediately, they flunk the test. And we'll see why. So these next four verses, verses 5 to 8, right after this immediate victory in verses 1 through 4 of Judah and Simeon, we get this really odd story that seems random and misplaced. What on earth are they talking about with fingers and feet being cut off? Why is he talking about these other lords, these 70 lords with their fingers and feet being cut off? This is incredibly random. Why on earth did the author put this here? This is weird. This is destructive. This is bad. But this has a very specific purpose in this beginning section of Judges. So we stop for a second here. It just told us they took on Bezek in verse 4. So, how did they find somebody that they just drove out? If they find him, he might have been hiding somewhere. What do they have to do now? If they find this person and Harem Warpus has pushed him out, devote this city to destruction, have the judgment of the Lord in this city, and then establish my presence, what on earth is somebody else doing there if they should have driven him out? So we see a little bit of a glimpse of failure. And then he escapes. Again, this shouldn't happen if Deuteronomy 20 is being followed faithfully. If they devote this area to Yahweh, to the worship of Yahweh, he shouldn't be escaping. 
This is no innocent acts. It's not just like, oops, he escaped. My bad. I should have been watching him. This is just outright failure. And this is right after they battled the Canaanites. So this incredibly odd event occurs. So what does it mean? Why are they talking about cutting off both thumbs and feet? We could pass over this too quickly in our Bible reading plans. We're like, oh, that just happened. Let's move on to the next thing. Instead of stopping at this, what does this mean? So there's all sorts of interpretations. Commentators had a field day with this interpretation, with this part of Scripture. Some say this is the ancient Near Eastern custom of cruel and unusual punishment, kind of like waterboarding. It's like taking somebody from the governor and saying, we're going to cut off your hands and feet because you can't move. You can't grab anything. You can't move anywhere. However, this part has some parallels with a couple sacrificial texts. This has some parallels to Exodus 29, Leviticus 8, and chapters 14, if you guys want to read those on your own. So both of these texts, all three of these texts, refer to these two body parts specifically as parts of the guilt offering. And so it usually says, take the blood, sprinkle it on the hands and the feet. It's entirely possible that Judah and Simeon are reversing this. So they say, we know we're supposed to devote them, but we're going to cut it off. We're not actually going to follow this. And they're also not priests. They're judges. They're going against everything at this point. They know what the law is. They know what the sacrificial system is. They take what was meant for the guilt offering, and they flip it on its head. We're going to fail both harem warfare, and we're also going to fail guilt offering. And this Adonai character says he did the same thing to 70 other kings. What does that also signal us? They're not doing something that Israel is supposed to be doing. They're following the nations. They're following what the nations are doing. This pagan king does this to his kings, to the kings of that area. These two who are supposed to be performing the Lord's work are doing what other kings and pagan nations do. Again, they're flipping the script and doing everything opposite of what they should be doing. They shouldn't have done this. And they bring him back. He flees, which is what they're supposed to. They're supposed to push him out. And they bring him back. And the text doesn't say, and they kill him. What does the text say? And he died there. Just this passive act. They're supposed to take care of this. He's taken care of on his own. And then they set this area on fire. And this could be hard for some of us with very modernized ears, very modernized, westernized ears. But this is the mandate Yahweh has given them. It is bringing very future judgments into the present, showing them this is what judgment looks like. This is what establishing the presence of the Lord to enjoy him looks like. This area needs absolute cleansing, as the Lord says, to be pure before him. Then the next three verses, in verses 9 through 11, we get another hopeful campaign from Judah, taking down the inhabitants of the Negeb, Hebron, Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. Again, there's this flip-flop pattern. There's a little bit of obedience and then just outright disobedience. A little more obedience and then outright disobedience. Who does this remind us of? 
reminds us of us. We have a little bit of obedience and then just outright disobedience. We're given this mandate. We don't fulfill it, whether it be at work, whether it be other relationships, anything. We can't see ourselves as the judges. We see ourselves as those who fail. Those judges who fail. That's a picture of us. So this, this hopeful campaign is, again, it's a midst of this flip-flop pattern. They obey a little, they disobey a lot. They obey a little, they disobey a lot. And then the next couple of verses, verses 12 to 15, we get quite possibly the best or next to the best portraits of fulfilling the mandates to purge the land for the presence of Yahweh in the whole book. So all 21 chapters of Judges, this is either the best or the second the best portrait of obedience in all of Judges. Let's read it real quick. In verses 12 through 15. It says, And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Axel, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Axel, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of Negeb. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the springs of water and the lower springs. So this is another strange mini story, but we have to ask, what's this story doing here? It's like the Adonai Bezek story, but it serves as the opposite of the Adonai Bezek story. We saw just how bad everything else went around it. This very hopeful story is very specifically put in the midst of a lot of disobedience. Tiny little speck of obedience in the midst of a lot of disobedience. And so how funny is this? After verse 12, when Caleb walks up and says, whoever attacks it, I will give it. What happens in verse 13? He attacks it and gets it. Exactly what he was called to do is precisely what he did. Again, we have, to, we have to see this in the midst of the story. Everything else, pretty much, is disobedience. We have this tiny little picture of he was given a mandate, and he fulfilled it. He knows the mandate and follows through. And this is also foreshadowing the only other positive story in Judges. It's with the same character, Othniel, in Judges 3. We're given a tiny little preview, a foreshadow of what disobedience looks like. It describes this very same person. So Othniel takes Axa as his wife, then Axa promptly asks for field and springs of water. This is to make sure that she can take care of her family. Very simply. She has the water, she has the land, she can grow stuff. Again, this obedience leads to success. They can stay in the land, take care of their family, versus everything else in the book of Judges is disobedience and death. Here, we get life. We get a little picture of life. This is also verbatim from Joshua 15. So the author is both pointing us forward and a little bit backward. Joshua 15 has almost exactly the same story as Judges 1. So the author is saying Joshua was an obedience judge, prophet figure for Israel. 
He's putting a little bit of that in here and then pointing us forward as well. So after this story of obedience under the mandates, the law of Yahweh in Deuteronomy 20 to purge land for his presence, we see a more flip-flopping of obedience and disobedience. In verses 16 to 21. And the Kenites related to the line of Moses dwell with the people. So this doesn't sound bad at first. We don't know, most people don't know who the Kenites are. We don't know what the relationship is. This doesn't sound bad at first until we realize the people are the Canaanites. So instead of driving them out, what are they doing? They're dwelling with them. This is the opposite. They should be pushing them out. It says they're dwelling with the Canaanites. And it's not just the people. It's the worship. It's the idolatry. We'll see that more specifically pointed out later on. Yet the more successful tribes under Judah, so the northern, or the southern, and Simeon strike Canaan and devote them and call them Horma, literally devoted. Horma is the Hebrew word for devoted. They call it devoted. Horma is the same thing as devoted. Verse 18 continues the same trend. Judah's obeying. Given this, they're given this mandates, and they obey. Verse 19 then stomps the obedience breaks. Because of the chariots of iron. Like, oh no, there's these chariots of irons. One of my friends put it funnily the other day. He's like, why are they worried about chariots of iron when they have the nuke right behind them? They have this nuke that can take down the best of what they have in the name of Yahweh. And they're worried about, these are very advanced weapons of destruction, these military equipment that the Kidnets have, but they have Yahweh on their side. Why are they scared of chariots? Deuteronomy 20, again, that same chapter that's used throughout the Judges, specifically calls out chariots of iron. Don't be afraid of chariots of iron, because I, the Lord, am with you. So it's like he's pointing out, this is why they're disobeying, and it's directly contradictory to the verse, the chapter, that they're supposed to be fulfilling. So this is distrust, not fright. They're not just scared, they're not trusting. So Caleb then obeys and takes Hebron and drives out the sons of Anak. Then the other tribe, Benjamin, then very specifically fail the mandate to harem the people. And the verse even increases the disobedience by saying the Jebusites live with them to this day. This could be some period of time, hundreds of years, from the time this happened to the time that this is written. To this day, there's hundreds of years where they're living with this outside pagan people. Again, this is not supposed to happen. So our, our author is just beating into you, beating into us. This is outright disobedience. We have to remember again, what happened in verse 2? The Lord said, I have given you the land. They already have the promise. They already have this, and they're failing. So after a long look at both obedience and disobedience, failure and success under the law of harem warfare, from verses 1 to 21, we get a short look at how the northern territory failed. Verses 22 to 26. The house of Joseph 
goes against Bethel with the presence of Yahweh. This sounds like a recipe of success, right? They have everything in place. We have Yahweh on our side. We're going to do this. Then they spy on Bethel. If you guys know Joshua well, what happens in Joshua 2? The spies spy on Rahab. The spies use Rahab. They spy out this land. Rahab helps them out. This should sound relatively similar to us if we know that story. And as opposed to Rahab's testimony to Yahweh, these spies don't say anything about Yahweh. Merely that they're spying. It might be some fear. So we look at verse 24. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. This sounds great, right? We'll deal kindly with you. We'll be nice to you. You in this land, we'll show you the gates. We're all good together. We'll be nice to you. However, again, this can be translated ever so slightly. It's the word hesed. In Hebrew, this will be kind to you. It's also a word for covenant faithfulness. Do you guys see that in the Psalms and other books in the Bible? Should the spies be covenanting with an outsider? No. They shouldn't be doing this. Deuteronomy 7.2 says that specifically. Do not covenant with those outside the people of Israel. What did the spies do? They covenant with somebody outside of Israel. Also in Exodus 34, 12. They're supposed to be hereming it, not covenanting with it. So they take down the city and allow the man to escape. It should remind us of what just happened a couple verses before. Adonai Bezek. Same thing happens. They let him escape when they should be doing the opposite of this. We, they go, if they showed this to Rahab, why can't they show this to the Lord of Bezek? It's because Rahab took on Israelite faith. Versus, this man doesn't. He even builds his own city. Builds his own city for this pagan nation. Lives as a Canaanite city. So he's building a city. He's expanding the borders of Canaan. When the Israelites should be expanding their borders... So it doesn't just go from obedience to disobedience. It goes from obedience to disobedience to now Israel's being encroached upon. So instead of them spreading their border, whose border is spreading on Israel? Canaan. They're building cities now. So now after verse 26, we move to just outright failure. Under the mandate of Yahweh to devote the land to him. There's been a pattern of faithfulness under the law to disobedience. And we're led to pure disobedience from here on out. This is predictive of the rest of the book of Judges. Kind of, it's structured, like I said, like the book of Judges. Chapter 1 is like Judges 3 to 16. It starts off okay and then gets way worse from there on out. Each judge gets progressively and progressively worse. So this moves us to our second movement, which is a lot shorter. Failure under the commission. So cascade of failure begins with verse 27 and ends with the Canaanites persisted in dwelling the land. So instead of this inconsistent at best pattern of obedience and disobedience, 
It's now just outright disobedience from verses 26 to 37. In verse 28, we read, When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but not drive them out completely. This forced labor in verse 28 is the same term and roughly the same phrase as Pharaoh in Exodus 1. What does Pharaoh do to the Israelites in Egypt? He makes them slaves. What is Israel told to do? Not to make them slaves, push them out. So instead of pushing them out, they do the same thing that Pharaoh does to them, to the Canaanites. So they're moving from disobedience now just to outright slavery over the people. Well, this is not what they've been called to do. So another tribe, Ephraim, doesn't drive out the inhabitants of Gezer, and Canaan dwells in their midst. Again, another failure. Zebulun, the next tribe, doesn't drive out Kitrin or Nahalal, so the Canaanites stay through forced labor. Again, they're doing this to another tribe. So it's not just one tribe they're doing what the Pharaoh and Exodus did to them. They're doing it to another. So another failure. You know, we're just being shown the author is pounding into us failure, 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 failure. Asher, another tribe, then has a bunch of groups that it fails to drive out, intensifying an already apparent failure of the tribes of Israel. And verse 32 brings up something significant if you read verse 32 with me. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive the mounts. So we read this shortly. We read this very concisely and bring this out. Instead of the Canaanites dwelling in the midst of the people, who's dwelling in the midst of who? The Asherites are now dwelling in the midst of the Canaanites. The script has now officially been reversed. They were given this mandate, drive them out, and now what's happening? The Israelites are now part of Canaan. They disobey to such a degree where everything the Canaanites are about is what the Israelites are about. So the tension and failure are thick. Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. We can now safely assume they're worshiping, they are idolizing, they're living as Canaanites. More failure in verse 33. It just just keeps pounding into us. More and more failure. No harem, but dwelling in their midst and performing hard labor. So instead of them putting the Canaanites in the hard labor, now they're dwelling in the midst of Canaan and being put into hard labor. So we see again, we see this, this consistent trend from Judges 1.1 to Judges 1.36. It goes from okay to really, 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 really bad. So now what happens in verses 34 to 36? Who's driving out who now? The Canaanites read Amorites, then push the people of Dan into the hill country. The outright failure is now at its height now. Israelites are given the mandate to push 
Canaan out. Now who's being pushed out? Israelites. So we begin with this preview of tiny evidence of obedience, Judah at the beginning and Othniel. And now not just obedience, but the opposites of the mandates. The failure is rampant. Disobedience is the order of the day. It's as if Deuteronomy 20 was saying, don't drive them out, dwell in their midst, do everything the Canaanites do, worship their gods. If that was what Deuteronomy 20 said, the Israelites are doing it perfectly. But the opposites of what the Israelites are doing. So we have to ask for Israel and for us. With this law, is there any hope for Israel? Is there any hope at all? Or is it just, just outright disobedience under the law? And that brings us into the last movement, the covenants and the promise, the last five verses. In verse 1, we get the messenger of Yahweh, or in some translations it could say the angel of the Lord. It's the same word, angel and messenger, same word in the original. It's probably not what we think of as an angel. One commentator says this is probably the same figure whom Yahweh had promised in the time of Moses to send ahead of the Israelites in their campaigns against the Canaanites and who function as the alter ego of God. We get this picture of this obedient one. We get this picture of this one sent by the Lord to both pronounce a judgment at the same time as giving them a promise. So it's entirely possible, like I said, this is a theophany, kind of like Exodus 3. It's a physical presence of this pre-incarnate, who, who we know as Jesus Christ to come. This messenger brings up, if you guys read in verse 1 and verse 2, brings up the covenant made with Moses and Abraham when he's talking about in verse 1, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you from Egypt and brought you in the land that I swore to your fathers. I, uh, fathers, I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenants with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? When the Lord says, when Yahweh says, I will never break my covenant, that should look to us like all Israel's done is break the covenants. He is juxtaposing. He's saying, what you've done is this. I am the precise opposite of disobedience. I am pure obedience with my covenants with you. And this shows us, too, this harem warfare wasn't just death and destruction. When we kind of think of modern ears, this is for worship. When it says, you have taken on their altars. When I told you to break those down, that is for their worship. He wants them to worship him in spirit and truth, not the Canaanite gods, not their altars. It's not genocide. It's not killing people of a different ethnicity. It's worship to Yahweh. And the punishment is now the result of their disobedience. Think kind of what Paul says in Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. Judgment is giving over to disobedience. That's judgment enough. When Paul says he's given you up into the lusts of your heart. 
that Israel then weeps and names the place Bochim, literally weeping. The word for weeping. Yahweh does not leave them. He's held to the covenants he made with the fathers. And we have to think, how incredible is this? Judgment for their disobedience in the law, yet grace because of his covenants with Abraham. So even after outright and consistent failure, disobedience and neglect of the law of Yahweh, think you and me. The messenger still shows grace because of the covenants with Israel's fathers. Israel fails to drive out the inhabitants of the land, yet we know somebody who was driven out. Not because of disobedience, but in his obedience. And this concludes what we're talking about here with the gospel. We know the one who was driven out when we should have been driven out. We are the very ones who defile the lands. You are the one, and I am the one who defiles this lands. As Adam and Eve were driven out from the garden because of their disobedience, the same happens for us, or should happen for us. Israel failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land for the presence of Yahweh. Yet we know who was driven out for the sake of his own obedience. He was driven out of Jerusalem for his crucifixion. He was driven out to undergo Israel's temptation in Mark 1. Jesus, under the same law, was driven out as we should be. But he took upon himself the very same sins of Israel in their disobedience as our disobedience. The same disobedience we read in Judges 1. We have failed so utterly and consistently under the law of Yahweh in precisely the same manner and consistency as those in Judges. The messenger comes to them with, a, with both a message of judgments, yet clothed in the mercies of the covenants. The same messenger comes to us, you, who are in Christ, no longer in judgments. So versus what the messenger of Yahweh came to Israel in judgments, he does not come to you in judgments. Because when the messenger comes to you, he sees Christ. He sees obedience under this law. So we have to ask, are you outside of Christ? Are you under this same law? Are you failing under this same law? The messenger comes to you in judgment because of your failure under the law in precisely the same way he did to Israel. And we can ask of ourselves, are you in Christ? The messenger comes to you in mercy and grace. Because we've been given this record of perfect obedience under this mandate. As if we have drawn sin out of our life. As we are perfect in ourselves. Because the one who is perfect in himself didn't drive us out. He was driven out himself to obey this so that we aren't driven out of him. We are in him. 
not being driven out when we absolutely should have been. He comes to you in grace as if you had fulfilled the mandates of Israel, as if we had this perfect record, we were given Deuteronomy 20, we fulfilled it beautifully, we fulfilled it perfectly, that Christ himself obeyed. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your son's obedience. We thank you for all that you've done for us. That even in our failure under this, as we see in Judges, as we see with Israel, the different tribes, there's this pattern of obedience and disobedience. We know the one who has truly shown obedience on our behalf. And we ourselves should be driven out of this land as Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. You have kept us in your son who was driven out for us so that we might be in him. We pray all of this in your son's great name. Amen.